pornography. It's as deadly as a poisonous snake and just as silent. But an Israeli company is fighting back. They've created an app that detects and blocks pornography on every single website on the internet. Today on The Land and the Book, we'll learn how innovators in Israel are helping keep children and parents safe, no matter where their online adventures take them. You're listening to The Land and the Book. It's a one-hour program that makes you feel like you're in Israel, and that's no accident. Dr. Charlie Dyer is the guy who dreamed this whole thing up. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, for a new listener, what can they expect as they join us today? Well, I hope they do feel like they're going to Israel for the next hour. The first part, we talk about current events. What is happening in the Middle East that they need to know? And then, of course, we meet some fascinating guests as you interview individuals. And then we answer questions because a trip to Israel always raises questions about the Bible. And then we end by climbing to a site in Israel, looking out over the vista, and then opening the book to see what God's Word says about that site. All right. It's going to be a great hour, and I hope you'll stick around for all of it. Starting with our current events topics, story one, Israel is still abuzz from allegations of police using spyware to hack into the phones of Israeli citizens. Help us understand the issues and what impact could all of this have on the trial of former Prime Minister Netanyahu? Yeah, you know, we mentioned this story before when it first broke, but it continues to simmer. According to some newspaper reports, the police, without court authorization, used spyware to break into and download information off cell phones. The initial report involved one of the individuals scheduled to testify in Netanyahu's trial, but subsequent reports claimed the phone hacking included one of Netanyahu's sons, others involved in the trial, and journalists, social activists from both the left and right, mayors, business people, politicians, and even some of their family members. Now, the police have denied the report and said the few instances where the software was used to examine a person's phone content were all approved in advance by the courts. And a report by the new attorney general said it found no evidence of illegal activity on the part of the police. Uh, The problem, though, is that this can't be absolutely verified. The company behind the software said it's required to maintain a log of all phones hacked and that there's no evidence any hacking has taken place. But there appears to be two versions of the software. Hmm. One has those safeguards, but the second doesn't. After all, a government using the software doesn't want any digital fingerprints left behind. A cyber firm that looks into such matters examined the phones of two alleged targets and said, well, they did find some evidence of digital hacking. Now, apart from a rigorous investigation by a team of competent, trusted, and independent investigators, the likelihood of ever knowing the truth might never happen. Now, in terms of the impact it could have on Netanyahu's trial, well, that's still not completely clear. Uh, Lawyers for Netanyahu and the other defendants are demanding that the prosecution disclose all information hacked from the phones. And Israel's state controller announced he's carrying out an in-depth investigation into the matter. If hard evidence of police overreach does surface, it could strengthen Netanyahu's claim that the cases against him were a witch hunt. At the very least, the revelations have caused a short-term delay in the trial. It'll be interesting to see how the judges presiding over Netanyahu's case handle the alleged spyware charges. But more important than all of that, the entire affair is a reminder why police and prosecutors both need to be extra cautious never to bend the law when it comes to investigating and prosecuting individuals. And that's true both in Israel and here in our country. Well, earlier in the fall, meteorologists in Israel predicted a below-normal year in terms of rainfall. How has that prediction panned out, Charlie? Well, as we all know, even short-range weather predictions can be notoriously inaccurate. And longer-range forecasts, well, they're even more uncertain. 
And in this case, the predictions, at least so far, appear to be off the mark. Uh, The rainy season did get off to a slow start with a very dry November, but then a series of storms started coming through in December and January and on into February that have brought most of the country up to above normal in terms of year-to-date rainfall totals. It's not that Israel experienced massive storms like last year. They simply had a lot more moderate rainfall events than what had been predicted at the beginning of the rainy season. Uh, The Sea of Galilee, John, you'll love this, it's just three and a half feet below the upper red line. Hmm. Well, that's the level where it could start flooding towns along the shore, and that's when they need to open the dam at the southern end to allow more water to flow into the Jordan River. Uh, The lake's going to continue to rise even after the rain stop because all the water that fell on Mount Hermon as rain and snow will still be flowing down into the lake. It's entirely possible the dam might need to be opened in a few weeks, and that's something they didn't even have to do all of last year, though it came close. And with another month to go when it can still rain, well, they still have a good chance of reaching the average annual total. What it means for Israel is that the Sea of Galilee will again be near capacity going into the summer, and the country's aquifers are also being replenished. The only downside could be the fire potential later in the summer. A good winter of rain is often followed by an above-normal wildfire season. Uh, Let's hope that doesn't take place. Hmm. You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar. I'm John Geiger, and we're working our way through a list of current events topics. Story number three, an Israeli scholar is arguing that Israel's exodus from Egypt was an actual historical event. Ta-da! Well, that's hardly a surprise to those who believe the Bible, but it is creating shockwaves in the scholarly community. What are the arguments that he offers to support the fact of the Exodus, and how accurate are they? You know, this is a subject where I want the scholar to be absolutely correct on all points, and unfortunately, while he does make some really good points, there are also some items we can't accept. But uh, let me give you some of the details. He argues that rather than looking for signs of the Exodus in Egyptian culture— We ought to look for signs of Egyptian culture in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. And uh, what he's making there is a good point. Egyptian monuments were dedicated to their victories, not to their defeats. Why would Egypt leave a record of being devastated by the god of a group of slaves? The professor provides some fascinating illustrations to show the fingerprints of Israel's captivity in Egypt within the Torah. Uh, For example, the Bible says, The Lord delivered us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, and awesome power. Well, that phrase, mighty hand and outstretched arm, occurs multiple times in the Bible, but only in the context of the Exodus. Well, the writer argues that's no accident, since inscriptions from the Egyptian New Kingdom era, which is when the Exodus would have taken place, routinely use that phrase to describe the pharaohs and their victories in battle. In essence, the Bible appropriated a phrase used of Pharaoh to describe what God ultimately did to Pharaoh. Now, the writer offers several other examples to show the Exodus account has a genuine Egyptian flavor. Here's just one more. The name of Moses' sister Miriam means beloved of the god Amun. Now, why would she have a name that points to an Egyptian deity unless she was born in Egypt? Now, unfortunately, I think the scholar goes astray when he tries to match up the Exodus with Pharaoh Ramesses II. He tries to find allusions to battles fought by Ramesses in the Exodus account, but the Bible places the time of the Exodus about 200 years before Ramesses. Hmm. Now, all that to say, some of what he suggests is fascinating, but it's still always best to start with the biblical data, especially when it comes to establishing the date of the Exodus. 
Researchers in Israel are developing a way to grow a new spinal cord to help paralyzed individuals walk again. Charlie, this sounds almost too good to be true. So tell us about this research coming out of Amazing Israel. Yeah, and this comes on the heels of a number of fascinating accounts just in the last several weeks of uh, work that's being done to help paralyzed individuals walk again. But in this case, researchers at Tel Aviv University decided to reconnect the nerves in a shattered spine by trying to mimic the development of the spine in a way similar to how the spine of a newborn develops in the womb. Now, their process starts by taking a small biopsy from the individual's belly. They then separate fat cells from other material and reprogram those fat cells to become stem cells that can then turn into any type of cell in the body. These new cells are then placed in a substance made from the non-cellular material they also gathered to mimic how a spinal cord develops in an embryo, ultimately producing spinal cord microneuron tissue. That is then transplanted back into the subject to regrow the damaged part of the spinal cord. Now, so far, the process has been tested on mice with an 80% success rate for mice with chronic paralysis and a 100% success rate for mice with short-term paralysis. Hmm. The scientists and researchers hope to begin clinical trials on humans within three years. Now, two points of note are important for most of our listeners. First, though this does involve stem cells, these cells come from the individual, not from aborted babies. They turn adult fat cells into the equivalent of stem cells. And second, they believe this process will work for both newly paralyzed individuals and for individuals who've been paralyzed for a much longer period of time. The treated mice underwent a rapid rehabilitation process. At the end of six weeks following treatment, they were walking. The process might take longer in humans, but the scientists feel confident the procedure will work. Now, imagine a time in the not-too-distant future when paralysis from a severe spinal cord injury will be able to be reversed. When that day comes, let's be sure to thank these scientists and researchers at Tel Aviv University in Amazing Israel. Charlie, that is exciting. But sometimes when we read of these things uh, coming up on the horizon, they are immensely expensive. Uh, Any sense of the cost of this process? Well, no, they've not uh, listed that, but it doesn't sound like it would be overly expensive because this process is being used in other procedures already. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. Hey, we're looking forward to a conversation about Israeli innovation keeping families safe. That's ahead next here on The Land and the Book. It's been called the most effective technology on the planet to block pornography. It's used on phones, tablets, and computers all across America and around the world. But where was this family-friendly app developed? Answer, Amazing Israel, of course. We'll learn what that app does, how it works, and how it can help your family next. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, promising you're going to find our next conversation stimulating. But before we move ahead with that, let's give some thought to creative ways to show the love of Christ to our Jewish friends and neighbors and co-workers. Life has its moments, things fall apart, and sometimes you have to call the repairman. What's that got to do with sharing your faith? Let's ask Beth Tavlin, who's with Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. Beth? Well, one day I had to call the oven repairman, And he was working on my oven, and I really was struggling with, how do I open the door to share the gospel with this person? And 
Finally, I just decided I'm just going to do it. And I handed him a Gospel of John, and I said, this could be the most impactful gift anyone has ever given you, if you will read it. The most impactful gift. Those are great words. And he looked at me right in the eye, and he said, I'm going to read this from cover to cover. And I was so touched by the way he responded that my insecurities and my fear had nothing to do with what the Lord could do in his heart. Yeah. And the thing is, we can give our Jewish friends that powerful New Testament. It is the most impactful book they'll ever get. It is. So don't be afraid, you say. Don't be afraid. Encouragement from Beth Tavlin with the Olive Tree Congregation, where she serves and co-leads the women's ministry and is also a congregational administrator here on The Land and the Book. Sean Clifford is the CEO of a company known as Canopy. The father of four young children, Sean aspires to build products that give families the good of the internet without the bad. And there's plenty of both if you're out there. Sean founded Canopy in 2019 to help build a world of healthy tech users, starting by protecting children from pornography. Sean, his wife, and their four kids live in Austin, Texas. Hey, thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. And the only thing I'll, I'll say at the outset, I'm from New Mexico, so I'm more of a New Mexican food guy, but uh, don't hold that against me. <laughs> I'll not hold it against you. I want to start off topic, if you don't mind, uh, Sean. This idea here I'm, I'm hearing about you guys with your tech-free Saturdays. How is that designed? How does it work? And how do you discipline yourself and your family to really unplug? It's a great question, and it can be a challenging thing to do at the outset, and I should note I didn't always do that, and when we started it, my wife and I found that, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you have that itch, kind of antsy, because uh, you're <laughs> used to getting that constant simulation, but once we got a couple of months into it, and once our kids also got a little bit older, it became an immense gift for our family. When our kids know that they have 24 hours of undivided attention, no work will be done, no technology will come in, that has been amazing. And then you can't give it up. So I was going to ask you, is it you know sunrise to sunset just for the morning, just for the afternoon? You're saying 24 hours, so you, you, you really go hardcore on this, huh? We do, yes. And it's been, again, we've, we've done it for close to a decade now. And our kids, when they know that that time is coming up, uh, there's actually a little bit of a spat to see who gets to turn off uh, my phone and who gets to turn off my wife's phone. And once it happens, there's just like uh, the oxygen comes back into the room and everyone is decompressed a little bit in a very, very compelling way. Uh, you revealed something, maybe unintentionally or perhaps intentionally, that uh, one huge benefit is your kids feel a sense of undivided attention. They're not competing with your phone or tablet anymore. That's right. And uh, there's a great book out there called The TechWise Family by a guy named Andy Crouch. Highly, highly recommend it. And one of the most haunting passages from the book is when Andy says, I think it was 2018, the iPhone had been around for 10 years, which meant that there was a generation of 10-year-olds in America who had spent their entire life competing for their parents' affection with the iPhone and oftentimes losing. Mm. And just that image of your child being in competition with the phone for your attention, for your participation, uh, has haunted us. And also kind of helps spur us to put some more healthy boundaries in place. I assume then you might suggest this tech-free Saturday or tech-free Sunday or tech-free whatever day as an idea for other families who are listening now. What other benefits have you seen come out of your tech-free Saturdays? There's a few things. It's uh, deeper conversations with my wife, uh, better time with my kids who really do appreciate that there's not going to be the distraction, just lets us get into a flow. It also, just from a brain perspective, it's incredibly important 
to give your brain a chance to recover. My wife is a neuroscientist, and when you kind of get hooked on this dopamine constant stimulation and you never take a proper break, it's hard for you to really recover, relax, and you're blocking off some really powerful things that can happen in all realms of your life. So I could not be a, a bigger fan of it. And again, I say this as someone who struggled for a while to really get into it, but once you've adopted it, uh, I don't think you'll go back. Sean Clifford is our guest today on The Land and the Book. As a father of four, he is justifiably concerned about safety on the Internet. That's why he's passionate about uh, an app known as Canopy and how it can protect families from pornography. Let's, let's talk about the development side of Canopy in Israel, I understand. Yes, that's right. All of this technology was developed in Startup Nation Israel by an incredible group of folks that uh, really are world-class innovators. This came about 10 years ago. The founder of the company is a rabbi with 10 kids who wanted his family and his community to have a chance to participate in the broader world without being exposed to all the toxic content that sometimes can come with it. And so he looked for solutions, didn't find anything that really served the needs of uh, his family and said that he would build a new one. So they started out early on. And, you know, the technology at the very outset was okay, but they have been working incredibly hard, leveraging some of the incredible uh, tech talent over in Israel. And they have today, I think, what is, in my humble opinion, the most effective tech out there. Mm. And it's starting to make a big impact over there. 90% of the schools use the tech. Over 2 million devices there are protected. And so it's having a force on the broader society and culture that we would love to replicate here. Well, there are certainly other pornography blockers out there. What makes Canopy unique or maybe even superior? Fantastic question. Historically, most blockers have relied upon a list of bad websites that they can block, and it operates at the domain level. And as long as your list of websites is up to date, they work fine. Now, that approach worked for uh, maybe the first 20 years of the Internet, but the Internet is too dynamic. Every single day, there's tens of thousands of new websites created. And on top of that, there's new, uh, regrettably, pornographic content that appears in otherwise benign websites like Twitter or Reddit or YouTube. So given that, our technology is different in that we are scanning every website you visit, every word, every image, every video in real time. The two tech advances behind that are the ability to identify pornographic content with 99.7% accuracy, number one. And number two, the ability to scan all the content in milliseconds so that you don't have an inferior user experience as you're out browsing. Taken together, we think that we block porn that other filters miss. Hmm. Uh, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that lag factor. That was my, my hunch. I, I, I don't have Canopy on my system, and maybe I should. But I, I wondered, you know, does it create a significant lag factor? You're saying, no, that's not the case. It does not. And in fact, they did a commercial in Israel in which they showed someone streaming something with the technology and without. And uh, there is 20 milliseconds, but to the human eye, it's, it's not detectable. Yeah. And that was, I'll just briefly note here, it's so important because as much as parents want to protect their kids and take the steps to ensure that they're safe online, if you have 10 seconds, if it becomes such a hassle and such a frustrating experience that it's impeding the ability of us to do homework or to connect with family or other valid uses of it, they're going to log off. They're going to uninstall it. So, we had to work really hard to get that right, and I'm grateful to say that we're there now. Yeah. Well, having mentioned that Canopy was created in Israel, what is your sense of the role that pornography plays in Israeli society today? How pervasive is it? 
you know, one of the reasons that they decided to kind of push a little bit more aggressively is that there was a poll that came out that looked at consumption or exposure uh, statistics among different cohorts of Israeli society, among secular, among the religious. And what they found is across the board, it was more prevalent than you would have imagined. And so I think the big takeaway from my perspective is the Internet and our smartphones in particular have ushered in a new wave of exposure. And this is across the board. And the stat that I'll throw out is that 62% of first encounters with pornography are accidental. These are not kids that are actively looking for it. It's mm-hmm. being sent to them. Mm-hmm. And this is happening in Israel, just like the United States. So I think it's very similar patterns there of just, you know, if you have a smartphone, you're going to be exposed. And it's, it's, a, it's a very sad state of affairs. Um, they were a little bit earlier to really try and act on it and make sure that the schools there, the places where kids do access content, have some safeguards in place. Well, what about uh, an app uh, like Canopy, perhaps potentially barring a user from legitimate websites? Uh, Any issues there? It is an incredibly important issue. Overblocking, I think, is usually one of the primary reasons why filters get uninstalled. And the way we try to address that is we are able to scan and filter within websites. So I'll give you an example. On Twitter, you can get news updates and you can get Elon Musk Bitcoin jokes and cat videos and whatever it is that's taking you there. But you can also find a lot of pornography. And we are the only tool out there today that can pull out the bad on a site like Twitter and still serve up the good. So we like to think of Canopy as a scalpel instead of a butcher's cleaver. We're not forcing in websites an all or nothing decision. Uh, We're really giving you the chance to just pull out the problematic stuff but still enjoy the rest. It works a little differently with apps. We can filter within a lot of apps, not all of them, but within websites, within browsers, we've really tried to make it as fine-tuned as possible so that you're not encountering wide swaths of the Internet that are offline. It's a pornography-fighting app that was developed in Israel, and today on The Land and the Book, we're talking about Canopy with Sean Clifford. I'm John Geiger. Sadly, we know that sexting is a growing issue today. How does Canopy address this facet of pornography? Every image that's captured by a device with Canopy installed, usually on a smartphone or tablet, is able to scan that image uh, when it hits the memory of the device. So sadly, sexting is becoming much more common. One out of four American teenagers has uh, received a sext. One out of seven has sent one. And two-thirds of all American teenage girls have been asked to send a nude photo of themselves. Mm. So when we scan an image, and this is an opt-in feature, it's all done by artificial intelligence, no human ever looks at this, if it does contain nudity or minimal clothing, it's like a bikini or something like that, our software will flag it and then give the user a choice. Hey, are you sure you meant to take that? And at that point, they can delete it or they can send it to their parent for approval. At which point, if the parent receives it, let's say we made a mistake and it's a bunch of 17-year-olds at the beach, there's nothing inherently inappropriate about it, uh, the parent can approve it and the photo then becomes available If the parent then deletes it, it will automatically remove it or force the user to delete it from their smartphone. Hmm. So as we face this uh, challenge, what we've tried to do is just create some guardrails. I made mistakes when I was 17, uh, didn't always take the time to think properly. So we want to just have that extra step in there to try and give them a chance to say, hey, are you sure this is really the right thing? And also give parents some way to to be involved and, and help their children learn. How will Canopy address the ways that porn creators will quietly try to work around apps like Canopy and kind of get through those barriers? Such an important question. Yeah. An app that can be easily 
circumvented isn't a very good filter. So we've actually developed a number of patents to try and, as we call it, walk the back doors. There's a number of ways. We sometimes don't always like to talk about them, just not to plant ideas in the minds of enterprising uh, <laughs> folks with filters on it. But uh, there's a number of ways. I'll give you one small example. Most apps now have something called an in-app browser. So if you go to Google Maps and you type in a local restaurant, you can open a website within Google Maps for that restaurant. Now, that's fine if it's a restaurant, but it can also be used to access other inappropriate sites out there. So we are able to filter all in-app browsers. We've also got a patent that prevents a child from removing the app uh, without the parental uh, approval. So there's a number of things that we've done. There's constantly ways that people are trying to find to get around it, and mm -hmm. we're constantly, when we learn about them, locking them down. Yeah. The last thing I'll share is we've got two groups of college kids that know all the filters out there, know all the ways around them. Uh, and for the past 18 months, we've been offering them treats if they're able to get around Canopy, and to date, <laughs> they haven't found a way. So, Hey, if listeners want to learn more, do you offer a trial subscription? Uh, how, how does that all work? Absolutely. So folks can find more at our website, which is canopy.us. There we walk through the technology, uh, a little bit about the story and why we think this matters. And you can also start a free trial. We offer all users a 30-day period to get it on their phone, to test it out, and really feel comfortable with it. Because we know that so much of your child's life has moved online and that this needs to be something that actually works for you guys and, and facilitates healthy use of technology. So that's why we offer the trial, and we hope folks will give us a chance. That's Sean Clifford with Canopy, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Thanks for enlightening us, and hope to talk with you again sometime. Likewise. Thanks so much. Up next on The Land and the Book, Charlie Dyer with a fresh set of Bible questions. Stick around. When you're really puzzling over a question, little else is more satisfying than a real answer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. The book, of course, the Bible. And once you read it, you can't help but answer questions. And for some of them, there just are no answers this side of heaven. But for many of them, probably most of them, there are if we just do a little bit of digging. Fortunately, Dr. Charlie Dyer has got his shovel there and always ready to do some deep digging on your behalf. Uh, we're looking at a stack of questions that have come into us from listeners like you. And if you'd like to get your question to us, it's easy. Send it to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. We'll start off with Jim and Joe Lynn. They ask in Luke 2, why did Joseph go to the city of David to register? Why not to a prior ancestor's city? Did everybody at that time go to the city of a relative who lived at the time of David? Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It does mention Joseph being a descendant of David. Well, that's part of the reason that uh, Matthew and Luke are tying Joseph's ancestry to David is because of the Messianic predictions. But Joseph's roots in Bethlehem would have actually extended back before David. Uh, we know David's father, Jesse, was from Bethlehem. First Samuel 16 tells us that. We know Jesse's father, Obed, was born in Bethlehem to his parents, Ruth and Boaz, uh, in Ruth chapter 4. And that takes us all the way back to the days when the judges ruled. Uh, which began shortly after the time of Joshua. So even though Luke only connects Joseph to David, the reality is that Joseph's family likely settled in Bethlehem from the time of the conquest. Uh, and going back to Bethlehem, Joseph really did go back to his ancestral home, which is likely where the family records, you know, both oral or, and written, would have been kept. Uh, but again, the purpose for the gospel writers is to tie Joseph to David, not to the ancestors that preceded David. 
Here's a question from Bob. He says, the new pastor at our church is pushing the idea that homosexual behavior is okay. About half the members of the church have left over this and other issues. Our pastors come back whenever confronted with Scripture regarding this subject is that our thoughts are just our opinions and nothing more, and thus, I guess, according to him, incorrect. Uh, What are your thoughts concerning homosexual behavior and Scripture itself, and what are some good resources to use related to this subject? Well, I'm sorry for that struggle that your church is having. Uh, The ultimate issue is whether or not the Bible is God's Word. If it is, then what it defines as good or evil represents what God has said on the matter. And when it comes to homosexual activity, the Bible clearly says it's sin. But I do have two other thoughts. First, while homosexuality is a sin, it's not the only sin or even the chief sin. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul places it together with a number of other sins that God hates, including other sexual immorality like adultery. Uh, We need to remember that all sin represents rebellion against God and his standards. Uh, Second, we need to remember that God loves sinners, even as he condemns their sin. Uh, The reason Jesus died on the cross was to pay the penalty for our sin. Those who recognize their sinfulness and who repent and turn to God can experience his forgiveness. Uh, My concern over the attitude displayed by that pastor is that it shows that uh, either he doesn't believe the Bible's the word of God or that he's so focused on loving sinners that he's unwilling to call them to repentance so that they can find forgiveness in Christ. If you want some more reading on this issue, let me encourage you to read two books by Christopher Yuan. He's a former homosexual who came to Christ and who eventually graduated from Moody Bible Institute. His books, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, and then Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, are well-written and very compelling. Christopher does an excellent job of sharing his journey and helping someone come to a biblical understanding. If your pastor is willing to look at the other side, these books could help him see the issue from another perspective. Thanks, Charlie. You're listening to The Land and the Book. And we're working our way through a list of email questions from our inbox. Lynn's question is this. Why are so many people, including Christians, following the flat earth idea, even quoting scripture to back up their beliefs? I've looked up many of those verses, and they do not stand for me the way they do for some of these people. My adult daughter, a Christian, will not be swayed from this belief now. Your reaction? i got to start by saying I've not come across anyone ever trying to support a flat earth theory. Uh, I suppose it is possible some would use verses like uh, those that speak of the four corners of the earth in Isaiah 11 or or something like that, but those are figures of speech to indicate all directions. The Bible does talk about the sun rising and setting, uh, like Psalm 113 or Isaiah 45, but we do that too. Uh, Those are just figures of speech, again, picturing totality, you know, like we say, from beginning to end. Uh, even though we know the earth rotates on its axis, you know, we still talk about sunrise and sunset. Uh, so that's what the sun appears to do from a human perspective. But again, that's not a statement of scientific accuracy, but a statement of, of appearance. Now, as you know from this program, I'm a firm believer in taking the Bible literally, but I also believe the Bible includes figures of speech. And I believe some individuals in the Bible also used figures of speech based on Middle Eastern cosmology. That's how, how the Middle East understood life, which some did believe back then the world was flat and that the sun revolved around the earth or the sun was a god riding his chariot across the sky from morning to night. Now, the fact that someone uses a figure of speech that might even be based on those false beliefs doesn't mean they were endorsing or promoting those beliefs any more than we might do if we speak about the sun rising or when we talk about someone taking a Herculean effort or discovering someone's Achilles heel. Uh, It's just a figure of speech. 
Thank you for your broadcast, says Harrison. I appreciate your helping people better understand the Bible. But here's something I don't understand. Will people be able to enter the heavens with their natural body? How can I back up my answer biblically? I read that their body will be changed when Jesus comes back. How many times will Jesus come back? When, when will people enter the heavens with their natural body? Please provide verses, too. Okay, well, I need to start by saying the Bible doesn't teach that individuals will enter heaven in their natural bodies. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 35 to 54, Paul explains the reality of a resurrection body. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can perishable inherit the imperishable. All individuals who go to heaven will have a glorified, resurrected body. Part of your confusion, though, might relate to some of the details related to the future. So here's that brief summary and some specific passages. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is Jesus returning in the air for his church. That's pictured in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. He says the dead in Christ will rise. Those that are still alive will be caught up in the air to meet them. They'll be given resurrection bodies and they'll be with the Lord forever. And then a seven-year period of trouble comes on the earth that doesn't end until Jesus returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and sets up his earthly kingdom. That's described in Revelation 19 and 20. At that time, the Old Testament saints and those killed during the tribulation period will be resurrected. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 and Revelation 24 and 5 describe that resurrection. Those who are still alive at that time will appear before Jesus and be judged. Unbelievers will be uh, taken away. Believers will be allowed to enter the earthly kingdom in their natural bodies. That's Matthew 25, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Now, after the 1,000-year reign on earth, there's one final judgment of all the unsaved of all the ages in Revelation 20. And after that, the new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem appear. And that's what we think of when we talk about heaven. And right then, everyone will be in their resurrected bodies who's there. Silas takes us to 2 Samuel and asks us to ponder these verses. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. His question, were these verses referring to two different Mephibosheths? Yeah, John, you just did a great job reading those names. Uh, so uh, jump to the bottom line. The verses are referring to two different men named Mephibosheth. The first, whom David spared, was the son of Jonathan. He was King Saul's son, David's dear friend. David honored this Mephibosheth for the sake of his father, Jonathan. The second person with the same name is said to be one of the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah. Uh, Rizpah was one of King Saul's concubines, so that second Mephibosheth would technically have been an uncle of the first Mephibosheth, since the second Mephibosheth's father would have been King Saul. Uh, having individuals from the same family living in the same time with the same name is really confusing, but we do the same thing today. You know, in my own life, my father's middle name, he was named after his, his maternal grandfather. As the oldest child, I was given the first name of my father, and my middle name is that of my father's father. And my brother was named after my dad's brother, and his middle name is after our mom's father. So it shouldn't surprise us. Something similar did happen in Bible times. You named people after relatives, and that's what happened here. But Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is not the Mephibosheth from the line of Saul through Rizpah, and that's the one who was killed. Real quick, one last question from Steve. Where can I find the Chosen on TV? 
Well, it's not on regular TV, but you can find it several ways. The easiest is to go to thechosen.tv forward slash app. It's also available on Peacock, Hulu, a number of other streaming services, but just do an internet search on how to watch The Chosen and a number of options will pop up. Coming up, Charlie Dyer's devotional. He opens his Bible, takes us to a place in Scripture, a place in Israel, has a unique way of welding them two together so that you'll never, ever forget either. That's all ahead on The Land and the Book. So if you've been to Israel, chances are you have a favorite spot. Now, Charlie Dyer, our host, has been to Israel somewhere between 80 and 100 times. You ever wonder what some of his favorite spots are? Well, I do, Charlie, and I think that has something to do with uh, your devotional series here. It does. We're going to start a countdown of five of my favorite places in all Israel. All right, I'll look forward to that. First, though, we're going to pause and take in this Holy Land experience. If you're new to the land in the book... A Holy Land experience is kind of a label we've given to these brief testimonies that have come into us from people like you, maybe, who've been to Israel, come back with a remarkable perspective, a story, an impression, and you share it with us. Sounds like this. Hi, my name is Dwight Iverson, and I want to tell you about the most fantastic vacation you could ever plan for your family, the Holy Land experience. We spent a week, 10 days here, And I can't pick one specific spot that impressed me any more than another one. From the Sea of Galilee, from Tiberias to the Temple Mount, uh, one after the other was a heart stopper. Bring your family, bring your young kids, bring your grandparents. You will not be disappointed with the time spent in the Holy Land of Israel. It's fantastic. We came to this trip with our family, and we had a 16-year-old girl a 14-year-old boy, and an 11-year-old boy. And those were great ages. They asked good questions. They were writing notes, paying attention. It was just an excellent educational trip for our whole family. Hi, I'm Debbie, and it was a wonderful experience getting to walk these steps together and at night debrief over what we had learned. Um, It was just a great experience for the family. Thanks so much for that Holy Land experience. Well, Charlie, I'm looking forward to this uh, new series that you've prepared for us, your five favorite places in Israel. You've been there so many times, I, I imagine it's tough to narrow it down, but uh, that's a struggle I'll leave you to face. Charlie, it's all yours. Uh, thanks, John. You know, one of the fun things we've done during our Land in the Book live events is to take the audience to some of my favorite places in Israel, mm. uh, to show them pictures and have them visualize what it's like. Right. And I thought that might be something everyone might enjoy. So for the next five weeks, allow me to take you to five of my favorite spots in Israel. Now, there are no slides, so you're going to have to use your imagination on this. But number five on my list is Mount Arbel. You've never heard of it? Well, I'm not surprised. It's never mentioned in the Bible. But for those who've been to Israel and stood on top of Mount Arbel, the view is unforgettable. So climb to the top with me and take your time. It's a bit steep, but we can all make it. You see that little tree in the distance? That's where we're heading. Well, actually, I tricked you, but just a little bit. We need to walk just beyond the tree. But the going up here on top is much easier. This is the spot, so catch your breath and take a look below. We're standing on the edge of a cliff rising almost 1,300 feet above the Sea of Galilee. From here, nearly the entire sea is visible. And as you look down, it dawns on you 
that this shouldn't be called the Sea of Galilee. It's really just a small freshwater lake. So why is this one of my favorite places in Israel? It's because from this spot, we can see many of the places where Jesus ministered in Galilee. Just below us is Magdala. A woman named Miriam lived in that town. Miriam of Magdala. You probably know her as Mary Magdalene. You see that spot a little farther up the shoreline with the red-roofed buildings? That's Tavga, a spot where Jesus called his disciples and appeared to them following the resurrection. Continue along the shore and you come to the village of Nahum. Uh, its Hebrew name was Kafar Nahum. You know it as Capernaum. A little beyond it is the Jordan River and beyond that, Bethsaida. From this vantage point, you can see that most of Jesus' ministry took place in a small triangle-shaped area along the very northern tip of this small lake. The points of the triangle are the three cities in which the gospel writers say Jesus performed most of his miracles, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. I love standing here on Mount Arbel because it reminds me of God's words in Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. If we had been in charge of sending the Messiah, this is not where we would have sent him. It's too small, too remote, too insignificant. We would have chosen Rome or maybe Jerusalem, but not the northern shore of this small lake in Galilee. Yet God did send Jesus to this out-of-the-way patch of the Roman Empire, to the district of Galilee, to an obscure corner of a freshwater lake in that region. What was God thinking? Again, the words of Isaiah come to mind. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. In fact, earlier in the book of Isaiah, God let us know why he selected the very spot of land that lies below us now. Right after Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness, Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Matthew then quotes Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus had to go to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali because God told Isaiah the prophet this would be the area he would make glorious. Now, most people don't know what area was promised to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, so take a second and look at the maps in the back of your Bible, or if you're using an electronic Bible, Google both places. Here's what you'll find. The region around Nazareth was part of the area given to the tribe of Zebulun. And the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee belonged to the tribe of Naphtali. Jesus went to the very area where God promised that his light would shine. Isaiah actually tells us quite a bit about this predicted ministry. He says God had originally treated the area with contempt, that it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And by that, he means the area had come under God's judgment to the point where God allowed the Gentiles to dominate and control the region. 
In Isaiah's day, it was taken over and controlled by the Assyrians. In Jesus' day, it was the Romans. But it was Galilee of, or controlled by, or belonging to the Gentiles. Foreigners controlled the fate of God's people. Isaiah also identifies Galilee with the Jordan River and the sea. You might never have thought about it, but what sea did God have in mind? We usually think of the Mediterranean, but Isaiah connects the sea with the Jordan River and the tribal allotments of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's the Sea of Galilee. Isaiah announced that this was the place God would select to throw the switch on the floodlight of his glory. Now, look back down at the lake. Focus on that tiny triangle of land where Jesus performed so many of his miracles. What lessons can we take away from this lofty perch overlooking a small lake in an out-of-the-way area in Galilee? Here's the lesson that strikes me with incredible force every time I come to this spot. Nothing is ever insignificant if God is in it. All too often, we're guilty of using the wrong yardstick to measure importance and success. We mistakenly assume that if something is bigger and flashier and more prominent, then it must be more significant. But look down again at this small lake and remember Isaiah's prophecy. God chose this most insignificant area to do some of his most significant work. Jesus taught, healed, and fed multitudes here. He also gathered a small group of disciples here, and his ministry to that seemingly insignificant group of fishermen and tax collectors ultimately turned the world upside down. As we get ready to walk off the top of Mount Arbel, I want you to leave with one key thought. Whatever you're doing for God is significant if it's what God wants you to be doing. And that truth, along with this great view, is what makes Mount Arbel one of my five favorite places in Israel. And what a view we've had. Thank you, Charlie. What a great reminder. Nothing is ever insignificant if God is in it. Love to have you visit our Facebook page. Charlie has updates all the time there. Photos, snapshots, articles, tidbits, perspectives that sometimes are just a bit out of the way, off the beaten track. You'll love the Facebook page. Best way to get there is to head first to our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Hey, love to get an email from you, hearing how God has used the program in your life, maybe to help you teach a Sunday school class or preach a sermon. Why not share that story with us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Hey, our time is gone. Thanks to our producer, Dan Anderson, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. See you back next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.